me. Father, we're thankful that this world belongs to you. All that in it, from the rocks, the trees, to the birds, the sky. All human beings, we all belong to you. And so we owe our existence to you. And as Christians, we, we owe our, our souls to you because you have bought us with the blood of Jesus Christ. We belong to your family, and, and so we are not our own. Would you help us to glorify us, glorify yourself with our bodies? And may we think carefully about what this means in relationship to our church and how we uh, conduct ourselves within the worship services. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We finished two weeks ago by saying that everything that we do must be for the glory of God. That famous verse towards the end of chapter 10, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And really, that's what worship is all about. It's about bringing honor, bringing glory to God's name. So let's start with an exercise by thinking of some ways that we can bring glory to ourselves rather than to God in our worship services. So what are some ways that maybe we have done or maybe you've seen other people do or other churches do that they bring glory to themselves rather than God? Any ideas? good example or bad example anything else any other ways we can draw attention to ourselves bring glory to ourselves rather than to God in our worship services okay (laughs) a lot of bling yeah is that a Hebrew term yeah yeah all right, so it can be in the way that a person dresses. It can be a way in the way that a person acts, trying to draw attention to themselves. Anything else? Or other examples? Melissa? Yeah, so there's lots of different ways that, that singing can actually draw attention to ourselves. Um, in fact, there are a lot... Uh, increasingly, increasingly more churches that are actually going away from music leaders at all because they find that the purpose of singing is for the congregation to sing. I, I don't personally have a problem with music leaders, thankful for ours, but um, but uh, but some people see that as actually a way that that can be distracting because now everybody's looking up at him rather than concentrating on the words, concentrating on God. Um, but but I definitely have all sorts of. Um, Worship team lead leadership worship teams. You know, we got a whole group of people up there and kind of swaying back and forth. Or you got the interpretive dance going on during that. I mean, you can just the list is endless. So I think we can clearly see that there are a number of ways that we can draw attention to ourselves in worship. Um, and um, and yet the point is is that God must be worshipped. Now for Corinth, one of the ways that women were abandoning the glory of God that's their goal, was that they were exchanging uh, glory that should have been directed at him for self-glory, self-consumed glory. And they were doing this by removing their head covering and causing people to focus their attention on them themselves rather than on God. And that's what this passage is all about. Paul's trying to get their focus back to where it ought to be. And so the question that, several questions that come to mind is, what is this passage about? What is at stake here? And is this a pattern of behavior applicable for women in our church today? In order to understand this passage, I think we need to understand what was said, what was meant, and then how can we apply it? And I'll break that down in, into a different way when we actually look at it. But let me begin by reading the text because we need to see what we're going after here. Uh, we need to see what God has to say first before we try to 
try to apply it to ourselves, try to understand it and then apply it. So follow along in your Bible as I read, beginning in verse 2. This is the Word of God. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. So we're going to explore this passage in four ways. First, I'm going to begin with an observation. I'm going to begin with an observation and then move to the structure of the passage. So that's where we're going to just break down the passage verse by verse, section by section, try to understand it as Paul is intending it. And then I'm going to focus in on the root issue, what I think is the root issue that Paul has in mind when he brings up this issue. Because if we miss what the root issue is, we might turn off on an exit ramp that we weren't meant to go off of. Okay? So I think we need to get down to the root issue. And then finally, we'll apply it for our, ourselves, our church, us as individuals. So we want to get into the structure of the text, but before we do that, let me make an observation. All right, and here's the observation. There are at least two meanings of the word head in this passage. Okay, the nature of language is that most words have more than one meaning. Okay, um, you determine the meaning of a word based on what? Context, right? You can't just go to a dictionary and look up the meaning of a word because it depends on in which context that word is being used, right? So, for example, if I said to one of my children, you are a pig, okay, what do I mean by that? Well, you need to understand the context of what's going on, okay? It could be that they dressed up in all pink, they have a curly tail, and they look like a pig. It can't mean that they're actually the animal itself because they're a person, uh, it could mean that they're eating. They're eating sloppily, right? Um, it could be that they're getting food all over the place. They're not just eating. They're getting food all over the place. It could mean that they're filthy. So it depends on the context, right, of how I'm using it. A dictionary doesn't help in that situation. Now, the dictionary would narrow down the op options for you, yes. But you can't pick one out unless you know the context of what I was saying. Is that clear? So, in this passage, what we need to recognize is that the word head does not always mean the same thing. It's going to mean something different in different spots. So, let's see if we can see that. Um, let's look at the first verse. Be, um, I'm sorry. Let, let's look at verse 3. Here's the first use of the word head. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Now, one of the options for the word head, for the meaning of the word head, is physical head. Is that what Paul is talking about in verse 3? In any of those three times that the word head is used, is Paul saying that 
that I want you to know that Christ is the physical head of every man? No. Is the man the physical head of the woman? That would be hideous. Is God the physical head of Christ? See, we, so we see that there's a different definition of head being used there, a different idea of head than the, than the physical head. Now, what we need to move on and see the next instance of the word head is found in verse 4. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying. So what kind of head do you think Paul's talking about there? Physical head or something else? Physical head. Every man who has his head covered while praying or prophesying, his physical head, notice the last part of the verse, disgraces his head. Now that one's a little bit more difficult. It sounds like he's disgracing his physical head, but I'm going to argue that he's actually talking about something else. I'm going to argue that the word head actually means authority when it doesn't mean physical head. Okay, so you've got to... Try to track with me tonight. I know this is deep waters that we're going to have to go through, but but this is an important passage, and I think um, if we work to understand it, it will help us to be discerning in how to study the Scriptures and how to apply the Scriptures. And by the way, I'm not going to be able to finish tonight uh, with this whole passage. There's just way too much here. When I got into studying it, I just realized that there's no way I could cover this whole topic in one evening. So actually what I'm going to do is I'm going to get, get through about half, halfway through the structure. All right. So let's go back to verse 3 and just consider something. We're, we're going to get this when we get to the structure. But I'm arguing that head means authority. Now there are other scholars who argue that head means source here in verse 3. Um, I, I would suggest that it actually means authority that the man is the authority of a woman, that God is the authority of Christ, that Christ is the authority of every man. Um, and so the idea is there's specific relationships in which each person has. And in that relationship, we have a responsibility to, to behave rightly, to use our, if we're in the position of authority, we need to use our authority properly or we need to submit properly, depending on where we are in that position. Okay. The point is that when both leader and follower are using their roles properly, then things operate well. Just like in the Godhead. You know, Christ is not pouting in the corner because He's not God the Father. You know, He's God, but He's not the Father. He is the Son. Okay, there are three persons in the Godhead. There are different, they are all one in essence, they are all God. But they all have different functions too, don't they? The Spirit doesn't have the same function as the Son. The Father doesn't have the same function as the Son. The Father didn't die on the cross. The Son died on the cross. Okay? And, and, um, and so on. Alright? So there's the observation. When we go through here, I'm, I'm going to try to point that out. There are two different uses of the word head. We need to recognize that. Alright? So let's, let's talk structure. Paul is going to begin with a basic premise in verses 2 and 3. He wants to lay down his argument for what he thinks is important about this issue that's come up within the church. So he's going to make a basic statement, a basic premise he's going to try to prove. From that statement in verses 4 through 6, he's going to draw out a command. Okay, So his basic statement is that women are under authority. That's the basic premise that he's going to argue in the, in the rest of the passage. And the way that that plays out in the command, verses 4 through 6, is cover your head. All right? And then he's going to prove that. Um, he's, going to, he's going to give some proofs, a motivation, and a warning to finish up the passage. All right? We won't be able to get to all that tonight. But what we do want to do is, is um, start with a basic premise. Before we get to the premise, he includes in here a commendation at the very beginning, which is kind of unusual, because... In chapter uh, chapter 10, he was just saying that he will not commend them. He, he's not happy about the way that they're um, about the way that they're acting. Uh, I'm sorry, that's actually I think that's at a different spot. But 
But here in verse 2, what he wants to commend them. He begins a new topic, probably regarding a new question about head coverings. Maybe there are some people in the church who didn't understand fully how this all worked, or maybe they saw some, here's what I think is happening, they saw some behavior that was going on in the church that was counterproductive um, in the sense that it was not bringing glory to God. That these ladies were, were presenting themselves in a way that was displeasing to God. And as a result, the word got back to Paul either through one of the members of the church or likely through Chloe's household, also a member of the church. But, but she, remember, at the beginning of, the, of 1 Corinthians, she's kind of bringing up some of these issues and Paul's not happy with how they're, they're um, misusing their responsibilities. Notice what he says here that um, I, he, he begins with this, this commendation saying, I, I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I have delivered them to you. So he, he's happy that they're maintaining some kind of tradition. And traditions, the word tradition has a bad connotation in our Christian circles as if all traditions are wrong. But for traditions are not in their own inherently wrong. We, we, we do all sorts of traditions here at our church that are not inherently wrong. They're not inherently evil. But Paul is commending the church for holding on to apparently some good traditions. And he's going to move from here and show the error in their thinking. While they may be holding on to what is good, they're also embracing something that's evil. He wants to get them back to the proper traditions. So here's his basic premise in verse 3. He, he makes this, this chain of statements with regard to authority, that Christ is the, the authority of every man, that man is the authority of a woman, God is the authority of Christ. And I think what he's trying to say is that a woman is under authority. And, and the way that he explains this premise is by listing three people who are under authority. And he does it in this order. Man, woman, Christ. Man is under authority. Who's, who's man under? According to verse 3. Christ. Christ is the head of every man. Woman is under authority. Who is she under? A man. And then Christ is under authority. Who is he under? God. God is the head of Christ. So do you see how that plays out? Man is under authority. Women, woman is under authority. Christ is under authority. But, but the grouping seems to be out of order. Like if he just was trying to say that there's a hierarchical structure within the Godhead, there's a hierarchical structure in the church, there's a hierarchical structure within the family. When I say hierarchical, what do I mean? Okay, there's an order, there's an authority that, that's there. He's not saying that though. He takes them out of order because if he did in that order, he would say, God is the head of Christ. Christ is the head of every man. Man is the head of a woman. But he doesn't say it that way. He says, he, 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 he starts with the middle one, right? Christ is the head of every man. Then he goes to the bottom one. A woman, a, a man is the head of a woman. And then he goes to the top one. And God is the head of Christ. So why go out of order? It seems to me that Paul lists the head of, uh, of a woman, that the woman has authority, in the middle, because that's the issue at stake. And the reason I think that is because that's what the rest of the passage is about. He's going to mention how men need to respond and how they shouldn't have head coverings. Okay, but that's not the primary issue that's at stake. The primary issue is that the, the woman is subverting her responsibility to her husband, specifically. So let's get more specific because um, it's not just that a woman is under the authority of a man or if you notice in the text, it's not that a woman is under the authority of every man. And notice, notice the language here in verse 4 again. I'm sorry, verse 3. Who is Christ the head of, according to the text? Every man. Now what we would expect next is and every man is the head of a woman. Or every man is the head of every woman. That's not what it says. It says the man is the head of a woman. So here's what I think Paul's saying. He's saying that a woman has headship. She has somebody who is an authority over her. Someone. Okay? The man is the head of a woman. 
And I would argue that that's her husband because in Ephesians chapter 5, we have a similar kind of language in the context of the marriage relationship. Right? That just as Christ is the head of the church, so the man is the head of the woman, and so he must serve her. So husbands, love your wives. Right? And in that context in Ephesians 5, it's talking about headship. It's talking about the, the fact that a man has headship or authority over his wife. Not over every wife. Okay, so ladies, when you come to church, you don't submit to every single man in this church. You have a responsibility to submit to your husband. Now, there may be some other men you have to submit to by virtue of, you know, being in the government. You have to submit to kings, right? Or at your workplace, you have to submit to your boss. There's other places in Scripture. Does that make sense? Okay, but I think we need to be specific about what Paul's talking about. Christ is the head of every man, but there's only one man who's the head of a woman, and that would be her husband. All right? Any questions so far? Does that make sense where Paul's going? Paul, I think, is saying here his main premise of the entire passage from verses 2 to 16 a woman is under authority. Now he's going to flesh that out and say, what does that mean? What does that look like in how you worship? He's going to make several um, proofs for why he thinks that women ought to wear a head covering in their culture. All right, any questions or comments? All right, Jared. Um, you know, I was thinking about that this week, and the only reservation I have about that, I mean, I think there's obviously, there's obviously the principle that a, a woman, really any child, has responsibility to submit to her father. Um, and we always have responsibility to honor our father and mother. Um, but the only reservation I have about that is that there's no explicit connection in the scriptures where we have the word headship, the idea of that kind of authority in connection with a daughter and a father. I mean, we probably could draw that out from implication. I just don't want to go, I don't want to go farther than where the scriptures, and I don't know that there's any danger in going there. Um, but I think the focus of what Paul is saying is with regard to a husband and wife, and I think that'll start to come out here as we continue in the text. All right, good question. So, he starts with the commendation and then the premise, a woman is under authority. Now Paul makes an implication from his premise and then applies it to the Corinthian women by giving a specific command. Okay, so here in verses 4 through 6, we have two principles, two principles that lead to a main command that's drawn out from the premise. So if we kind of think about the premise as the birthing mother. She gives birth to this command. And it's going to come at the end of verse 6. But before he gets there, he wants to set up two principles that support what he's about to command them to do. So the first principle is this. Every man should worship, worship with his head uncovered. Let me show you where I get that. Verse 4. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. Now, pagan men in the ancient in ancient Rome would put their toga over their head as an act of piety. And Paul brings this up in verse 4, not because Corinthian men in the church were doing this and drawing attention to themselves. I don't think that's the case. But rather, because everyone would have seen how foolish it was for a Christian to come into worship and draw attention to themselves by acting like a pagan. In other words... Paul's saying we all know that no man would, would draw attention to himself in this way by praying in church and engaging in a pagan ritual where they purposely use their robe as a way to draw attention to their piety. Look at how spiritual I am. Notice the reason why. That a man should not have his head covered. The end of the verse tells us that, that the man who does disgraces his head. Now we agree that there are two uses of the word head in this in this passage. Okay. Could either be his physical head or it could be 
is authority. So which one do you think it is there in verse 4? Every man who has something on his physical head, we agree that that's true. Every man who has something on his physical head while praying or prophesying disgraces his what? His physical head or his authority? I would argue that it's his authority. Does he disgrace his physical head when he puts something on it? Does he dishonor or humiliate himself when he just puts something on his head while praying or prophesying? No, he's dishonoring. Verse 3, who is his head? Who is his head? It's Christ. Right? So he's dishonoring his, the, the person that he's supposed to be honoring. So I think what Paul's saying here is that the man dishonors Christ when he draws himself uh, attention to himself during prayer or prophesying. Every man who follows the pagan ritual of drawing attention to himself, of putting something on his head, actually disgraces his head, Christ, his authority. The point is that man should worship God in a way that's consistent with his maleness, which in this culture, for these people, it was that they should pray and prophesy. They should worship with their heads uncovered. And this leads to the main point. Okay, The reason that he brought up this first principle was really he's drawing a contrast. He's saying just as it would be foolish, as we all agree that men draw attention to themselves and dishonor Christ, so women do the same thing when they do the opposite. Notice verse, verses 5 and 6. Here's the second principle. Very obviously, every woman must cover her head. We could say while worshiping. That's the point. Let me show you where I get that. Verse 5. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. If a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. For, but if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. Here we come to the heart of Paul's argument because everything is going to flow from this this idea. Okay, Main premise. A woman is under authority. Main command coming up at the end of verse 6. Cover your head. Everything is going to flow out from this idea. So let's begin by identifying the meaning of the word head in verse 5. There are three of them. What do they mean? Verse 5. Every woman has who has her head uncovered. Which head do you think Paul's talking about? It's the same idea as with the man, except for it's, for him it was every man who has his head covered. We were talking about his physical head. And I think the same thing is true here. But every woman who has her physical head uncovered while praying or prophesying. And then notice the same language that was used in verse 4 disgraces her head. Disgraces her authority. And then the final one, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. I think that's talking about her authority or her physical head. And her authority, yeah, physical head. Her, her actual head, we'll talk about that here in just a second. Her actual physical head is shaved. It's just as, uh, as humiliating as that. So we have a connection here between what she does and what she's saying. That is that when she uncovers her physical head, she dishonors her God-given head, her God-given authority. And notice how serious this is in Paul's mind. It's as bad, at the end of verse 5, it's as bad as what? At the end of verse 5. It's as bad as a woman shaving her head. What's so bad about that? Well, look at verse 6. Paul calls it disgraceful. In the middle of the verse he says, but if it is disgraceful, we can say, since it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved. Obviously, we're not talking about cancer patients here. Okay, this is long before chemotherapy. So what we're talking about is a person shaving their head as a statement against their authority. He's going to argue later on in the passage that, that the, the hair of a woman is the glory of her. It's the excellence of her. And so it's actually humiliating. It's disgraceful for her to, to shave it all the way off. And what Paul wants them to see in verse 5 is that if they can just get the connection between the disgracefulness of uncovering their head is on par with shaving their head, then he's done his job. That's what he wants them to see. That's how dishonoring it is in, in Paul's view. 
one of the features that clearly mark off a woman from a man, from a man is her hair. Right? In normal circumstances, you can tell the gender of a person based on their hair. For example, suppose I put a dozen pictures of people from the shoulders up that you had never seen before. Do you think you'd be able to determine if they were male or female based on their hair? And I'm talking about people from all different cultures. Could I put up a picture of a dozen people and you, with relative certainty, get a picture of, of whether they're male or female based on their hair? Could you do that? But suppose I put a dozen pictures up of six men and six women. They all had their heads shaved. They were wear, wearing no makeup or jewelry. You see, women lose their distinctiveness when their head is shaved. They are disgraced. And the same was true in the Roman society as well. That if, if the Romans wanted to shame a woman, they would shave her head and make her bald head be displayed in public. She would become a laughing stock. Now again... Paul's bringing up this issue of shaving the head, not because people in the church were doing this as a statement of their freedom or a a statement of their femininity. He's saying, look at how ridiculous this is for you not to have your head covered. It's the same as if you shaved your head. It's the same disgrace. And so here's what we can infer was going on in the church based on Paul's sharp rebuke. We can infer that there were women who were purposely uncovering their head during worship and being brash about it. Okay, the reason I say during worship is because it's while they pray or prophesy. And in the process, remember verse 5, she disgraces her head. She disgraces her authority. Now, why is a woman with an uncovered head, what is so egregious about uncovering a head during worship? Why is that on par with a bald woman? And apparently, uh, this was a disgrace to her husband because an uncovered head was saying, look at me and consider me as uncovered with regard to my authority. Apparently, in their culture, not just in the Corinthian church, the little church, this is how their little culture ran, but in the larger culture, the Roman society, that the symbol of a woman being under authority was the fact that she had her head covered in public. And Paul's saying, when you come to the church, you're taking your head covering off? Now, We don't have a perfect parallel in our culture. But imagine that a woman got up to pray in our church or to give a testimony of thanksgiving to God. And as she stood up, she, for all to see, took off her wedding ring and put it down and started giving her testimony. What would that be saying to everyone everyone who's watching and, and listening? What would that be saying? just a symbol, right? Just a ring. It's a piece of metal. What does she say? Yeah, or she's saying, I am publicly available for you to gaze at. You single men out there, you're taking it off, okay? I'm no longer under the authority of my husband. And so, again, we don't have a perfect parallel but, but, a, but a woman like that might argue, wait a second, there's no command in Scripture. Okay, let's talk about a, an American woman today in our churches. She might argue, but wait a second, there's no command in Scripture for me to wear wedding rings. Show me where it says I have to wear a wedding ring. You say, well, there isn't. But, but in your symbolism, it appears that you're throwing off the authority of your husband. You know, she might say, well, wait a second, there's neither Jew nor Greek in Christ. There's neither male nor female, slave nor free. Therefore, I am functionally not under the authority of my husband. I am available for you men to look at and pursue. So 
I would argue that the head covering in the first century Roman society was a symbol that she was married. That is, that, that this was a common understanding, not just in the church of Corinth, but throughout society, that when someone saw a woman walking through town without a head covering, it would be obvious to them that either she wasn't under authority or she didn't want to be. And there's been much historical work done on the subject that supports this view that I have. But I, but I think, um, you know, I, I am hesitant about putting too much weight on historical, historical um, findings. Okay, because if we're constantly, let's find out what the scripture says based on what, I, what history says. Now, ideally, history is going to match up. It's going to support what we have to say. But, but we should be able to find the clear meaning of the text from the text. Um, and I think the main reason that we can be sure that this was a cultural thing is because of Paul's main concern, which is um, in verse 10. So let me just point you there. We're not going to have time to, to dive into it, but, but I think this is his, his main point. Therefore, the woman ought to have, and then those next three words are in italics in the New American Standard, a symbol of, which means that the translator just added them in order to, to clarify what was going on. But literally it is, therefore the woman ought to have authority on her head because of the angels. So Paul's main point is not about the social construct of the head covering that, that told the people something. Instead, I think his main point is submission. It is, don't get out from underneath the authority of your husband just because you want to make a statement. And that's what leads to the command. And so let me show you that here at the end of verse 6. Here's the command. So I said there's a main premise. A woman, must, a woman is under authority. It leads to a couple of principles or implications. A, woman must, a man must have his head uncovered during worship. A woman must have her head covered during worship. That leads to a command. So, verse 6, at the end of the verse, since it's a a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, which is on par with having it uh, uncovered, then let her cover her head. There's the command. In other words, women, you bring honor to your husband when you follow this culturally appropriate expression of your husband's leadership. I would say it the same way with, with the wedding ring. Okay, if if that's a parallel, if it's a parallel for our culture, right? Women, you honor your husband when you keep your wedding ring on. You don't purposely pull it off when you go to talk to other guys or something, right? And and the converse is also true. Women, you bring shame to your husband when you fail to use the culturally appropriate expression of your husband's leadership. Now, in order to support this point that the Corinthian women should cover their heads when they worship. Paul gives four proofs, a motivation, and a warning. Start in verse 7. Four proofs, a motivation, and a warning. And I'll pick that up next week. All right. Any thoughts on what we've looked at so far? Any questions that I need to get back and dive into and study more deeply? Because this is the time. I've got a week here between now and and next Wednesday. Bill. Yeah. Well, you have to wait till next week too. I do have. Not, I have two options for you there, um, and uh, and I'll uh, I'll explain that next week. Jared. What would you find? Right. 
Yeah. Well, what I would say to that is, um, yeah, the, the question that we have to ask is, is Paul making a trans dispensation, well, really we're in the same dispensation as he was, so is, is he making a, a command that transcends time, goes beyond cultures, or is he making a cultural statement that, that comes out of the, his main problem, which is what I'm arguing. I'm arguing his main problem is the problem of subversion of authority. That's the main problem. The, the cultural expression of that for them was, and, and I'm going to argue next week that it's not a cultural expression for us in the Western world, whether that came out of good, I mean, whether we changed our cultural values and wh- how we expressed ourselves, how ladies expressed themselves in worship, whether that came out of uh, um, good motives or not, the question I'm going to, to argue next week is, well, I'll say it for next week, but um, so, so let me put that in the shelf for next week, but, but that is a good observation. You know, if, if what you're saying is true, that by and large, and I haven't done the historical research to know, but, but from what I understand, um, it was largely a Roman issue based on the scholars that I studied this week. So, here. Yes, I agree. Yeah, and I'm going to try to help us make some application for that next week, and we'll talk about verse 10 a little bit more closely as well. That's a good question. Norma? On Easter? (laughs) Yes. Yeah, and that might be tied to trying to submit to this passage. I'm not sure. I, I'd have to know the specific churches. But I I haven't been to ones where... Are you talking about like the big, huge paths or just the little tiny? Okay. Just every time a woman's there in the service, she's wearing a hat of some kind. Yeah, and I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring up the example of, uh, of India, South India, where Santos George is, and they do... They don't wear hats, but they wear a scarf of some kind over their head, um, just as a cultural expression of of probably trying to obey this. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't know how all everybody else operates and how all they they do what they do. But what we're trying to get at is what does the text say and what does it mean for what does it mean and then how do we apply it to ourselves? Like, are we Disobeying the text by not requiring men or women to wear to wear head covering. So that's what we have to explore next week. So hope hope you'll be here for the conclusion of it because uh, you probably cut yourself short by not finding out the rest of the passage. Yes. Yeah, I don't know. Um, the tradition passing that's not... i got to be careful I say this. Um, the tradition passing sounds to me like a Catholic phenomenon. You know, we, we receive this from the apostles, and so this is what we do. You know, the Pope idea, you know, just keep passing it on from one hope to the next and that's how we know what to do and and there are a lot of um, Eastern Orthodox um, Christians over there in India so they could be you know they could be following that sort of thing but but 
again, as I mentioned at the beginning, traditions in themselves aren't bad, but where are we basing those traditions on? And I see what you're saying. You know, we're basing it right here on the text. And but I I'm less inclined to to try to go to the historical data and just try to see what the text says best we can. What we can't understand from the text, or you know, the, the holes in our thinking, we you know, we're not wrong to study the historical data. I think there's a lot of value in in his, church history. Um, we're going to have a whole class on it for 13, 26 weeks here in uh, next year or so uh, on Sunday morning. So um, there's definitely value in church history. But um, yeah, I don't, I don't really know how else to answer that one. So let me think through that this week, though. What's up? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's not Paul's point. Is not that it's wrong to wear them. Yeah, he, it, what he was saying, if anything, is it's it's wrong not to, and that's what we're trying to explore. I, I'm, I mean, you've already kind of seen. I'm tipping my hand a little bit. I don't believe that women um, are required to wear head coverings. But if a woman wanted to, I would not be opposed to it. In other words, um, there's nothing. There's nothing prohibited in the scripture from a woman wearing a head covering. Um, unless, as we'll talk about next week with regard to application, she's doing it to draw attention to herself, which is where the hats could come in. You know, have you ever sat behind a sombrero-sized Easter hat? <laughs> I mean, that perfectly matches the belt or <laughs> the whatever. It's like... Sometimes there can be a pursuit of attention with a head covering and even, you know, the little head covering that's Amishy. You know, that could be like, hey, look at me. I'm all put together type thing when, um, you know, person may or may not understand what the, what the point of the text is or why they're doing it, just doing it. So they could actually draw attention to themselves by wearing it. So in that sense, I would say that would be prohibited. But... If it's not to draw attention to themselves and it doesn't draw attention, you know, again, like going to India, I was not offended in any way when I saw, you know, one side of the church that were completely, all the women had head coverings on. I was not offended at all. Um, and, and they were tastefully done in that they weren't, you know, big, colorful, you know, and, you know, made up really big. To, it was just, um, subtle and um, in keeping with I think their culture because that's what you see in public you know you see people in public wearing a similar kind of thing now theirs specifically is not tied to the authority that they have to their husband I don't think because I, I don't think the church ladies were wearing those other than in church they put them on in church take them off after church so um, anyway all right, a lot more we can think about. If you have some more questions, would you email me or catch me tonight or call me or something? I'd, I, um, I've already put a lot of time into trying to study this the best I can to try to feed you with the word. I don't want to get bogged, bogged down too much in details, but I don't want to miss the point either. So I'm trying to help to distill it as best as I can for you. As I understand, Paul, the Holy Spirit, God is teaching us and I'm going to present it to you, you have to determine whether what I say is of the truth or not. I mean, you have to determine what is of God and what's not. And if it's of God, then take it, obey it. If it's not of God, then leave it alone. I'm, I'm not inspired. I try to remind you of that often. I probably don't have to, okay, because you, you, see, you see my flaws. <clears throat> um, but I do want to remind you that because I think in our fundamentalist cultures, uh, pastors have done damage to the church as a whole by acting as if they have no flaws, right? Like, I'm God's man. I'm the man of God. You obey me no matter what. Um, I have a verse that backs that up, Hebrews 13:17. so do it. And you can't disagree with me in any way um, because I, I speak on behalf of God. And... There is a sense in which I, I don't want to minimize the office of the pastor. Okay, I do speak on behalf of God. That's what you called me to do. 
Um, but I'm not flawless. I'm not a prophet. I'm not the son of a prophet. And I work for a nonprofit organization. Okay? Old joke, but I'll use it again another time. Uh, if it'll get a couple groans. But but I do want you to see that, um, you know, I, I am flawed. So I wrestled a lot with this text th- these last two weeks. And, um, you know, providentially I was... I was running a fever last week so couldn't present the first part of it. I don't think I would have been fully ready. So thankful that God gave me some extra time to to think through that. But but um so just take that with a grain of salt. Um you know, anything that anyone says, anything that you read that's not verbatim scripture, you need to use discernment. Even if it's me or the Apostle Paul. Well, Paul's not going to speak to us, but I'm, I'm using Galatians 1 there where he says, even if it's me or one of the angels, then if, if they come to you with a different gospel other than what has been handed down to you, then let that one be accursed. And I would say the same thing about me. Okay, I, I don't want to misrepresent God. Um, I try my best to represent God and to represent what he's saying. But don't blindly follow me and then expect God to understand. Like, oh, well, you were following your pastor. That's okay. I'll forgive you. Um, question me. Question what I have to say. Um, question there. And, and that's why the Bereans were commended, right? In Acts 17, because they searched the Scriptures daily to see if what Paul was saying was true. And you would do well to follow their example. And so I want to encourage you in that way. All right. Um, Let's take the rest.